I just finished a great interview with Brandon Frenza of the law firm of Cantrell and Cantrell. Uh, Brandon's younger than most of our guests, and he brings kind of a more youthful perspective. And he's got an interesting background. He used to work at the IRS, and he works at a law firm that specializes in IRS controversy, uh, amongst other tax-related things. Anyway, he's a uh, he's an interesting guy, and uh, I really enjoyed the interview, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed the interview. Hello, Brandon. Hey, Dave. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Well, thank you for joining me on the IC Disc Show. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah. So uh, my guest today is Brandon Frenza with the law firm of Cantrell and Cantrell in Houston, Texas. And uh, I guess to get started, uh, why don't you um, tell me just a bit about your background and uh, uh, where you grew up, where you went to undergrad and uh, law school and uh, how you ended up in the, the tax law world? Okay. Well, um, I'm I'm a bit of a traveler growing up. My my parents were in the military, so we lived all over the country and overseas. Uh, but I I typically call uh, Reno, Nevada, my home. Where I went okay. To school. And um, yes, my undergrad is in. Strangely enough, digital media, which is uh, sort of a computer science and graphics-related background, not really much to do with tax at all. Okay. But, you know, uh, sort of how how things go in school. Uh, But at some point, um, my wife and I, when we focused in on law school, we we ended up here in Houston for law school. So I went to Texas College of Law. Okay. Uh, and uh, shortly after that, um, met up. Wait, hold on, hold on, but hold on. I need to find out when you fell in love with tax. So oh, uh, yeah, no, that that's, was that in law school or, or actually, after law school? Yeah, so you know when you when you go to law school, you have these uh, sort of dreams of being the next Perry Mason, or maybe that dates me a little bit. Um, not sure. I'm familiar with. I'm familiar with Perry Mason, <laughs> but uh, uh, and and South Texas particularly is very good um, for trial advocacy. But I found out quickly in law school that I was more interested in the transactional side of law than litigation. Okay, and um, I I took my first tax course um, in the in a summer class, so that's kind of an accelerated timeline. And okay. uh, it was probably the most feared class. Every, all the students were were just dreading it. And uh, the particular instructor that I have is ruthless and focused on really destroying the students. Um, and he's very good at it. He's a former LLM tax professor um, from uh, Florida State University. And, okay. Uh, he just he just loves to terrorize the students. And for the first time in my life that summer. Uh, I actually got strep throat and was very sick. So my first experience with tax was not one that you fall in love with. Okay. <laughs> but 
somehow, uh, you know, I recognized early on that there, there's just such a connection with tax to just about everything that, that we do in this world, especially transactional. And I knew I wanted mm-hmm. to get into the business side. And I thought that that would be an excellent start for me to better understand the business side of the legal world. And okay. That led me into more tax courses. Um, South Texas is unique that we actually offer quite a lot of tax courses there. Uh, and there's a couple of professors that have experience teaching at the LLM level, which is a okay. master's in tax. And so I took as many of those courses as I could, um, just soaked them up. And that led to uh, an internship or an externship with the with the local chief counsel's office at the IRS here. And I did that while in school. And really just sort of developed an interest um, over time, sort of grew a taste for it. Okay. So it wasn't love at first sight, but, no, uh, but no. Uh, you just kind of warmed up to it yeah, uh, if over you had, time. If you had told me, um, you know, years before going to law school that, one, I'd go to law school, and two, I'd be in tax, I, there's no way I would have believed it. it, it but now it's, a, it's the right kind of fit. It's perfect for me. I, I enjoy it immensely. Um, I, I I find it to be very awarding and challenging at the same time. Oh, that's that's great. Well, I'd like to hear a bit more about your IRS experience. Uh, uh, what, what comes to mind that might have been uh, maybe one of the best parts of uh, of being there, or one of the most enjoyable aspects? Uh, well, before I even intended to go over to the IRS, there's kind of this. Uh, they're the enemy mentality. And so, you know, going uh, over to the IRS, I wasn't really sure what I would experience. But I found that, uh, especially here at our local office, the chief counsel's office, that there, there's a really great team of, uh, of attorneys there. Uh, and, and I learned uh, from, from some very competent attorneys that, that their focus is on really trying to come to the best result. Um, okay. My experience with the tax court over there was uh, quite an eye opener. Um, as I mentioned, I, I didn't really have a desire to be in the traditional litigation field. I wanted to be more transactional. And yes. when you're involved in tax, you, you a lot of tax is transactional, but you can't really get away from some controversy related work and. The tax court situation is very different from your traditional trial court situation. It's it's nothing like it. And because tax is so very technical, the judges that are appointed to the, to the tax court, um, they have a very special understanding, not only of the code and the procedures, but of the taxpayer and the taxpayer's inability to really understand all the rules. And so... Uh, that that was something that I, I learned very quickly while being at the IRS, that there's a lot of leeway given to try to help out the taxpayer get through these very complicated situations. Wow, that's really interesting. I uh, uh, I think most people's uh, just assumption would be that it is a much more adversarial uh, situation where they're trying to, to kind of find gotchas to, to, to trap the, the taxpayer. But that was not your experience. Well, there there certainly may be, and I I think now that I'm on the other side of the line, 
Um, I see that, especially in the initial audit stages, there is a lot of that um, gotcha kind of mentality. And, mm. But when you're dealing, um, once you have made it to the level of going to tax court to defend your case, now you're dealing with the IRS. And it's not that they're um, not willing to aggressively pursue their position, but uh, you're dealing with individuals who have a, a, a greater command of the tax code itself and of the procedures and are really just trying to come to a result that is supposed to be the best result. So uh, I, I think that it is shocking to a lot of taxpayers, and I've seen many times when a taxpayer will show up in the tax court and, and they're scared out of their mind, they look like they're afraid that they're going to be thrown in jail over a tax issue, only to find out that they can actually resolve it in many cases right there. Hmm. Most tax cases don't actually go to to the full extent of being tried. Most of them are settled because there usually is a, a resolution. Okay. Well, what uh, uh, are there some examples of things that you learned uh, during your externship that, uh, that you, you find yourself uh, using today? Um. That's a good question. You know, uh, tax issues are are so um, encompassing and just complicated for not only the general individual or business, but even even for um, tax professionals and lawyers. And I, I think. Um, one of the things that I, I learned most is that, that you have to really be very careful when you go through a tax situation. Um, I also learned, and I, I find this a lot in my practice now, that you cannot ignore a notice that comes from the IRS Okay. when it comes to a tax issue. that You just can't ignore them because that's really your opportunity to correct or defend a situation and you don't want to find out sometime later that you could have fixed it and now now you're you just you know things are worse and there's very very little you can do about it okay so that's that sounds like a good general uh tax advice really for anybody uh which is when you receive a notice from the IRS to uh to take action promptly either uh either responding uh, directly oneself or retaining outside counsel such as your firm? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, the other is um, when the issues become very complicated, um, you know, even before I mentioned that, uh, what I see a lot both at the IRS and, and now where people get into trouble is they they get into some sort of a business transaction, and then they ask the tax question later. And I, I know I'm a little, I'm, I'm biased towards tax. That's the industry that I'm in, but I do a lot of business-related uh, work. And it is always better to ask the tax question first, and then get into the to the business transaction or into the whatever direction you're going, because. 
it's better to plan for the tax issue up front than to try to deal with it later. Some more wise advice. Uh, so it seems like our first two lessons for the day are one, never ignore a notice, and B, uh, make sure that the tax consequences of a potential transaction are uh, really at the forefront. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, any other thoughts on the IRS uh, that you want to share or any, uh, any interesting stories or experiences from your time there? Um, you know, I, I think um, just in, in line uh, with the idea that the IRS is necessary, always the bad guy, although um, I would tell you you should never rely on, on what they say is the word. You should always challenge their position. They, they don't get it right all the time, um, most of the time in my case. But uh, one positive note for the IRS is that um, we had a case while I was working there with chief counsel where um, the taxpayer involved a basis question, their cost on a house. And uh, I noticed while digging through the, through the uh, reports from the revenue agent that they hadn't even taken into consideration some of the transfer rules uh, that applied to this particular transaction. Uh, I pointed that out to the council involved at the time, and um, the end result we came up with was that there was there was no tax due to the taxpayer. So they had already made it through audit level and appeals level, and now they were at tax court, and we come up with a resolution that there wasn't actually a tax issue and just the joy that the taxpayer had at the time I think that's probably what um, really sealed for me that I wanted to be um, involved in tax but more so on the other side so that I could help my clients get to that resolution and not have to deal with that stress if, if we could help them avoid it because oftentimes there is a simple solution and a way to resolve it. Hmm. Well, very interesting. Well, that then brings us to. Um, so, tell me about your the your the firm that you joined. What made you uh, want to join them? And and just tell us a, a bit about the firm and and some of yeah. the things they do. The the, the firm is um, we're a very unique uh, boutique law firm. It's Cantrell and Cantrell and. Um, there's several unique features about the firm, but I think the first one is that the uh, managing and founder partners are husband and wife, Pat and Carol Cantrell. And uh, okay. what's unique is it's, it's rare to find a husband-wife team in the legal field that that work so well together, and, and Pat and Carol just complement each other in, in every way, um, professionally and intellectually, and uh, they they make the firm really a a good place. It feels like a like working with family here. It's, it's a wonderful environment. But um, I first met Carol Cantrell while I was working at the uh, at the IRS Chief Counsel's office. She and another associate of hers were handling an estate related case, and uh, after we concluded our meeting. The uh, attorney, who at the time was a, a senior attorney over there in the count, chief counsel's office, 
and very well respected. She told me aside that if I ever got the chance to work with Pat and Carol Cantrell, I should absolutely take it because they were highly respected in the community and very good at their at their job and very knowledgeable. And it was a short time later when we were in tax court that I ran into Carol again, and I remembered that comment, and she offered me um, an opportunity to come over to the firm. And, uh, so I couldn't pass it up, but um, that's that's how I met them initially. Um, okay. And is my is my understanding correct that another unique thing about Pat and Carol is that not only are they both attorneys, but are they also both CPAs as well? They they are. In fact, um, Pat was a revenue officer with the Internal Revenue Service before that. They're both CPAs. Pat and Carol are both uh, board certified in tax and. Uh, I believe Pat has uh, 52 years in tax, and Carol's almost about the same. Um, and there's a, a third partner, Derek Mata. He's he's our head of controversy. He's a former IRS chief counsel um, here out of Houston and out of uh, out of the office in Louisiana, I believe. And, uh, the the combined experience is just immense. Carol's even double board certified. She's got a state planning certifications as well. And uh, their their abilities are, are are incredible. And they're both writing and publishing and um, often uh, coordinating with other um, larger companies or larger firms uh, who need some, someone with specialized tax ability. And Cantrell and Cantrell is, is unique because uh, Although we're a boutique firm, we are entirely tax focused, and we have um, seven tax focused attorneys just here at this at this firm, uh, and we do large firm work, but at a at a small firm uh, atmosphere. So it it's a it's a wonderful place to work, and and the work here is. Um, Quite unique and and exciting because we're covering just about everything that you can imagine in tax, from estate and uh, business planning, and uh, as well as individual and corporate or partnership tax. We also covered administrative and controversy related issues. We'll even take it to tax court if necessary. Okay. And um, and I understand that the, that the IC disc is uh, is part of your practice area. That you don't limit your practice to IC disc. Is that correct? Uh, correct. Yeah, we um, we do cover a, a wide variety of topics. I I myself focus primarily on business and partnership related uh, tax, and uh, the disc itself is falls within that business category. Uh, Houston is just such a wonderful area because we have um, local and international business. Just it's a hub here, so uh, there's a lot of export activity here, which ties directly into the need for the IC disc. Okay, so um, so so tell us uh, tell us a bit about IC disc. Uh, what's it stand for? How long has it been around? Uh, 
just some things for, uh, for, for the listener who's maybe not uh, an expert on IC-DISC. Yeah, you know, the, the IC-DISC is itself um, a, a complicated acronym. It's an interest charge, that's the IC, and Domestic International Sales Corporation. And that's where the, the, the term DISC comes from. So the the DISC itself is um, something that was instituted by Congress um, in the in the seventies to uh, address export activity and okay it is called a domestic international sales corporation because it's a it's a u.s corporation that is involved in um export uh, products outside of the u.s there's the international part and uh, as i'm sure we'll get into there's there's a couple of ways that a disc can be involved in exports um, and the primary method involves uh, the disc receiving a commission for its its involvement in the export of of the export product. Okay. Well, why don't we just take a take a step back? So, uh, sure. so the the disc is that a like a S corp or C corp or LLC? What's the, yeah, what's so the structure of the disc? There there are um, some very specific requirements for a disc more so than just about any kind of entity that can be formed. Um, the, the Revenue Code um, covers this under Sections 991 through 997, but in, in 992 specifically, the requirements for a DISC are that it be a corporation. Um, it has to be formed in the United States, and that actually has to be within the 50 um States of the United States, it can't be a, a territory. So, okay, uh, it does have to be a corporation. It um, it has to have um, at a minimum of uh, twenty five hundred dollars worth of value in the company. So the way we handle that is issuing twenty five hundred dollars worth of shares at minimum, uh, so that its shareholders. Um, can meet that requirement. Just, okay. Um, and and um, the um, I'm sorry, I just kind of was thinking of something else. So so please continue. <laughs> You're giving us a little background on the disc. Yeah. So um, the yeah there there's there's several requirements for. For forming a disc, it's got to have uh, one class of stock. Um, I think that's where I was going with the 2,500. So it has to have one class of stock, and that there has to be at least $2,500 in value of stock every day of the year for it to remain a, qualified as a disc. the The disc is a is a special tax election that has to be um, filed and received, and Unlike some other types of entities, like an S corporation, um, you, you with an S corporation you can file the election and then you sort of act as though the election's already been approved. With a disc, the election has to be approved. Um, you can't just assume that it's it's been approved. Although, if you're following the rules, I I haven't run into a situation where they don't approve the disc. Um, but okay. they, they are very specific that it. 
it has to be approved first. So you you, you file a, um, a, a form which is referred to as Form 4876A with the IRS, and um, that has to be filed specifically within 90 days of the beginning of the tax year for that entity uh, okay. who want the election to take place. And then provided that the IRS approves that, then um, I think even to back up there, um, the election itself has to be, um, it has to be uh, authorized, I guess is the word I'm thinking, um, by each of the shareholders of the company. And that includes okay. any um, any spouses of a shareholder that might be in a community property situation, which we find here in Texas. Uh, so if you have um, community property spouses and they're not both necessarily shareholders of this disc, the spouses of each shareholder and the shareholder have to sign the election in order for it to be valid. So the, there's very, very specific rules on electing for the disc itself. Okay. So, um, uh, and, and I know that the disc is not your sole practice, but could you give us a sense of your, uh, uh, the amount of discs you've been involved in? Is it, is it, uh, just a handful? Is it, uh, hundreds? Is it dozens? Uh, uh, talk about the breadth of your experience. Um, I, I'd say, um, dozens. We, we've had, um, quite a few. Um, it, it seems that they come in, in waves. Uh, every year we have about a dozen or so um, formations and then um, a, about a, a dozen or so just very specific disc-related um, research or question-related um, tasks or issues okay. come up. So, um, And then even the occasional... Um, controversy-related issue on discs, which is uh, more rare, but... Um, well, talk to me, talk to us about uh, some of your controversy experience. What uh, What's the typically the, the nature of those? Uh, or maybe give us an example of a particularly interesting one. Well, so I, um, I don't know what the current number on um, how many discs are in you know, are active today, but, uh, not too many years ago, it was, um, just a little over 2000. So there's not a lot of, um, uh, discs when you compare them to say a, a different type of entity structure, but mm -hmm. even so the, there's, there's not a lot of direct auditing on a disc by the internal revenue service. And partly, and this is just my opinion is, because the the requirements for a disc are um, so complicated that it does require somebody with specialized um, experience and understanding at the IRS level to even audit the disc. What happens where an audit comes up and affects a disc is that um, oftentimes the shareholder or um, the the related supplier or producer that is um, connected to the disc because they're providing the export product, 
uh, is audited. And that oftentimes can be uh, either another corporation or a pass-through entity like an S-corporation or some kind of LLC. And they get audited because that's more frequently the case or, or the individual themselves. And that leads the IRS to take a look at the disk and um, in the cases that we've seen, it often is that the the agent doesn't understand um, the disk, and they just see that there's a tax benefit happening here, and and they challenge it automatically. So it, it, sometimes, unfortunately, it starts because the agents aren't aren't really educated well enough on the disk rules or its purpose. Hmm. Uh, so do you find that you end up having to sometimes uh, have to assist in that education process with uh, a generalist agent? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, um, one case in particular, we we had the agent did just that. They were auditing the related supplier company. The supplier company had formed a disk for its tax benefit. And the agent didn't understand um, the nature or the purpose. And when the agent looked into it, the agent found that there were specific requirements for export property uh, and what qualified as an export property. And they challenged that and said, no, your property doesn't qualify. Um, Fortunately for the DISC, they had good advice before they had even formed the DISC to help them prepare their um, you know, be prepared for what the qualifications are for export property, and their particular property was um, was uh, a scrap metal type of property. Okay. Um, or product that is, and uh, the particular issue at hand was whether or not they were manufacturing export product, and if scrap metal was export product. So we walked the agent through, but the agent was so uncomfortable that with with the complexity of the issues that they had to run this up the line to Washington D.C. and get a result back from from D.C. the The end result was that they agreed with our information, and there was um, no taxable effect on the disc where the agent wanted to ignore the disc, um, but. It's just an example that the IRS themselves don't know how to handle the disk because they're not training their agents to do that. Um, And it it sounds like part of the reason is because there's so relatively few disks that perhaps it's it's not uh, the highest priority training uh, given a relatively small number of them. No, that's that's a a very good way to... um, to highlight that the the IRS really does limit their area of focus to uh, where they can spend the greatest amount of time. So because there are uh, more individual taxpayers, they spend more time on individual audits. Because there are more corporations, they spend more time on corporations. Um, but the area of the disc is is it's not is not one where the IRS spends a lot of their time on it. So. It is important, though, that when an audit comes up for a disk, that you have someone who understands the disk well enough to help educate the IRS and get them out of that situation, because there's often uh, a lot of legitimate tax savings on the table there. 
and the IRS is happy to take those away if they think they don't apply. Mm-hmm. Sure. And is is my understanding correct that another uh, potential area that the uh, IRS may be confused on is is it called the form over function uh, or, or form over substance? Yeah, uh, substance. Yeah, substance over form doctrine. Correct. Yeah, could you talk a bit more about that and how that applies to the to the disc? Yeah, well, so um, particularly in this case with the manufacturing question, um, the the agent was trying to say that the um, the although that the form of the disc was. Um, was legitimate and followed the rules that uh, the substance, uh, what they were, how they were carrying this out didn't meet the, the intended effect uh, that, that the writers of the code um, desire that the, the, the individual was taking advantage of the tax code because they were, they were getting a benefit that wasn't intended. Um, we, we had to help the IRS see that the actual use of the disc met the very intention that the writers of the code uh, had provided for. And um, in this particular case, the, the, there are some specific examples on what met um, the requirements and, and we, we actually our our export property was, um, was an exact replica of, of the, of the example that was was listed even in the in the code and the regulations. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. And um, isn't because yeah. my understanding is that the the IC disc is also uh, sometimes referred to as a paper entity, uh, in that it, it typically has no employees or, or or activities and such. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So. Uh, there's there's two ways that a disc can be used. It can be used actively, or it can be used, I guess, more passively. This this idea of being a paper or a shelf company disc, uh, which is more common. A paper company is really something that is, and this is the substance of a form docu- doctrine. It it it's formed, but is it really taking on the activities of a regular business? And um, fortunately, in the case of a disc, Congress provided specifically that a disc does qualify for its activities, even if it's not taking on the traditional business activities of having employees and actively having inventory and all of the other typical um, activities that you find in a business. Uh, it's a paper company because you form the disc and then its entire job is is just to facilitate the um, the tax benefit and the the rest of its activity really just happens on paper um, but and that's so this attention yeah and yeah thank you for that and i my understanding is that that sometimes uh, will will kind of confuse a typical agent because this runs I guess exactly opposite of the normal uh, kind of uh, interpretation of that, you know, substance over form argument, right? That if a if a non-disc business uh, doesn't really 
uh, have much activity that that you right. Uh, could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. So usually a, a business has a required number of hours or activity that has to be put into it, um, and and there are there's a series of um, uh, there's a, like a checklist of activities that you could go through, things that are action items that the business might be doing uh, that prove that it is in existence, that it's actively conducting business, that the business is legitimate, um, and so forth. And um, a, a disc itself doesn't need to necessarily be involved in all of those things. Um, and, and that's one of the areas where an agent will, will say, well, we don't see that this this company is actually performing any of its typical activities, and that's an area where we have to educate them. Here, according to the the section um, in in 992, it explains that the disc doesn't necessarily have to be involved um, in in regular business activity. Okay. Here, I... Okay. Um, but we'll, again, thank you for that for that uh, clarification. What uh, what are maybe some examples of uh, two or three uh, pitfalls that you see that sometimes shareholders will unintentionally uh, fall into with a disc? Uh, it sounds like one of them might be the that that they perhaps had not filed the election timely. Uh, is that correct? And and if so, what other um, situations do you see that uh, that uh, people get in trouble with the disc? Yeah, certainly the um, the first one is the is the election filing, or or actually uh, one of the first areas that I see is when um, not the the twenty five hundred dollar rule is that the um, the company have the shareholders have uh, $2,500 worth of value in the company when it begins. Um, so that seems like a small amount, but oftentimes entities are formed without any money being put into them, and then money comes as the entity needs it, or it takes out a loan or something, and, and debt doesn't qualify for this $2,500 rule. And when we're talking about the benefits of a company that would have um, such extensive gross receipts and revenue, $2,500 is such a small amount to forget. So it's a little thing, but it's a requirement, and um, it's important that the company start out with its $2,500, then that it make its election and all the shareholders sign that election, and it gets filed within the first 90 days of the tax year. Um, okay. Those little rules are very easy to miss. It's easy to miss those deadlines. An, another deadline that is often um, overlooked, there is a, a requirement that if the disk itself um, utilizes this um, this position where it can be receiving commissions for its income, those commissions yeah. that it earns have to be paid to the disc within 60 days at the end of the tax year. That's that's something that requires uh, a, a good accounting procedure on the part of the company, whoever's keeping track of the accounting for the disc. You need to have a good CPA or somebody that is keeping track of that. 
and they need to help remind you that those commissions that are earned have to be paid to that disc within 60 days, or the disc could could be disqualified. Um, and I think okay. I, um, maybe not a final, but another big one is the disc itself has the ability to loan some of its income to the related supplier or the producer of the export product, which is often necessary. And that specific loan is titled a producer loan. And the producer loan itself needs to be um, memorialized. It has to be written down. It has to be um, executed. And it has to have a very specific maturity date within five years. And it needs to be designated as a producer loan at the time that it's made. And, And so that can't really be an afterthought. It needs to be planned out ahead of time. Okay. Well, that's well. Well, thank you. Those sound like some useful um, uh, tips for for people who uh, either have a disc already or who are considering the formation of one. Um, any other, uh, uh, you know, sort of pitfalls or uh, or landmines that people unintentionally fall into that come to mind with the disc? Um, I don't know. Um, you know the. the Disc being as um, complex as it is, uh, there, there's many ways that I think you could um, misunderstand if you don't have some good direction ahead of time. Um, just why I think it's it's very important to have um, somebody like yourself. I, as I understand, you, you do a good job of instructing your. Uh, your clients as to sort of the general rules of what a disc is and then directing them to um, somebody that can give them really specific answers on the legal questions. But it's a good idea to to have that up front. Um, one of the things that we do when we form a disc is we put together um, an operating memorandum. This is a document that really in very as simple as you can get with complex terms and code sections that we we lay out the rules, the expectations, the, the, the areas that you should be aware of. The, there are very specific distribution requirements, and there are some timing issues. And so we put that down, and we try to help um, our client understand what some of these are, so that at least they have an expectation uh, ahead of time. It's it's equally um, important to have someone who understands the return preparation and the accounting side of it as well. So just in general, for a company that has a disc or is planning on having a disc, it, they need to to really make sure they have somebody um, in their corner that, that understands these rules and can help keep them on track um, so that they can continue to take benefit of those tax savings that, that are involved there. Okay. Well, well thank you. That's... Uh... That, that's that's very insightful and helpful. Well, as we're as we're nearing kind of the end of our of our talk here today, uh, what do you think the future of the disc is? Uh, it seems like the disc has been quote uh, going away like since practically since its inception, or certainly from the eighties. So, what are your thoughts? Is it is it is it really going away? And maybe another way to answer it might be, what are some of the reasons? to think that the disc might last another five plus years and 
Conversely, what might be some reasons that it might not last another five years? You know, it is so very difficult to tell, and I, I, I think uh, um, I, I hear that about a lot of different um, taxing structures where uh, we think that it might it might go or it might stay. Um, and on the one sense, it's hard to know uh, what is going to motivate the next tax law change. Certainly, we've seen a, a huge tax law change that just came through. Um, and uh, in fact, there was an opportunity for Congress, Senate put on on their changes for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act before it was passed. They actually put the disc on there to have it repealed. Um, it's not entirely clear why there are some comments, but uh, I personally, I think that um, in an effort to try to uh, maybe appease um, the general public and the younger generation, they were putting items on the block that um, seem maybe arcane and in a way to try to retrieve some tax savings from the from the taxpayers, they put it on there. But the reality is they had their chance. It was on the chopping block. They took it off specifically. And at the last minute, um, they removed the disc uh, from there. So it's it's still very much in existence and very much a viable option. I guess one could say it looks like they're considering not using it. But I would argue that... Um, that the the need for the United States to have um, viable tax options towards export activity is is crucial, and it's one that has always been around. The original intention for having a disc was to incentivize um, export activity, and especially with uh, the growth in our economy today, the export. Despite any of the trade wars that are occurring currently, you're not going to get away from export activity. And um, if ever there was something that could help boost jobs and U.S. revenue, the DISC um, is is an excellent incentive for that. So, okay, I, I think that's one reason why it will stick around for for many years to come. Okay, well that's. Thank you for that insight, and thank you also for the context that that it's not just the disc in particular, but really any part of the tax code. It's hard to have a definitive uh, crystal ball as to the future uh, right. uh, uh, nature of it, because uh, tax law changes, and sometimes it's it's maybe not expected. Um, uh, so, so thank you for that. Well, uh, so I think to wrap up, I'm looking at my notes here. So early on, you talked about uh, just in general with tax, you had two uh, 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 two tips that seemed very helpful. One is uh, do not ignore a tax notice. Uh, if you ignore it, it does not necessarily mean it's going to go away. In fact, it sounds like just the opposite. It just gets worse. And then the second thing you'd mentioned is when considering a, a business transaction, uh, really consider the tax consequences and tax structure on the front end. Is that... Did I capture your your sentiments on those two points? Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay. And then we drilled into the disc in particular, and you had some tips there around, uh, you know, really being careful to follow the rules of the disc, uh, that there are some very specific timing rules and deadlines that with other corporate structures might be more relaxed, but with the disc, uh, they're perhaps more strict. But on the other hand, they, the substance over form doctrine, uh, on the other hand, is sort of relaxed, it sounds like, with the disc as compared to other uh, structures. Well, yes, yes. And I, and I realize um, that uh, it can seem kind of daunting to dive into any tax issue. Um, and, and maybe that's why I enjoy the field of tax as, as I do, because it is challenging. But um, any business is going to face challenges. And there there are regulations in every industry, and, and tax is just one part of it, but it is a big part of it. And any opportunity to uh, maximize your tax savings is definitely worth considering and looking into. That's that's excellent. Well, I uh, if any of our listeners uh, you know want to reach out to you or you know, they have a, they're considering a disc or are you know have a disc and have questions, uh, are you generally amenable to to receiving you know com, you know brief communication like that uh, from from people if they you know have an issue or a question? Yeah, absolutely. That would we'd be certainly very happy to receive questions and calls from from anyone. So what uh, what phone number uh, <clears throat> should somebody use to uh, to reach you? Yeah, I, we can be read. Can, the number for Cantrell and Cantrell is seven one three 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 zero five five five, and uh, that's our general line. I don't have a direct uh, line other than that, but um, so seven one three email. Uh, yeah, I'm ahead. sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, now go ahead and repeat the number again. Yeah, seven one three 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 zero five five five. Our web address is um, is cctaxlaw dot com, and the the C's stand for Cantrell Cantrell, T A X L A W dot com. And so our email addresses are all at cctaxlaw dot com, and and they're typically our first initial and our last name. Mine is. Uh, B-F-R-E-N-Z-A at cctaxlaw.com. That's excellent. Well, thank you uh, for that. And we appreciate your uh, your willingness to, you know, to field, uh, uh, you know, in- inquiries from folks. Uh, I mean, obviously, if it turns into a full-blown engagement, you know, that's, that's another story. But we appreciate your willingness uh, to... Uh, you know, to, to field uh, a preliminary call as it relates to the disc or, or really any other tax controversy matter. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to get on and, and talk a little bit about the subject. Um, thank you very much for having us. All right. Well, thank you, Brandon, and have a great day. You too. Thank you, Dave. All right. Bye. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-discshow.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show.
So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.